0: It's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, glad that you are here. We're going to be continuing our study today, uh, dealing with this topic of anger and looking at the biblical perspective of anger. Now, Lord willing, uh, we're going to complete this study next Sunday um, and then start a new sermon series uh, on the following Sunday, uh, September the 10th. Now, as we've been considering this subject the past couple of weeks, I've been somewhat surprised, honestly, about some of the things that I've discovered uh, as we have had some interaction in our community groups and, and, you know, before and after services and stuff, just kind of hearing some of your reactions dealing uh, with this topic of anger. Uh, You see, I discovered a few things. You know, if you were to take our church As kind of a microcosm of believers today, there seems to be a reluctance or maybe a hesitation, if you will, to even admit the fact that sometimes we get angry. I think anger has such a negative connotation in our society today that many believers don't even want to have an appearance of anger. It seems that we also struggle with this idea of God being angry or expressing his anger toward us. You know, I've, I've heard people say that, well, God's disappointed with us. Uh, When when we disobey him or God is displeased with our choices or or God is frustrated with our attitudes. But for whatever reason, many of us seem averse to saying that God is sometimes angry. Angry at us. The psalmist in Psalm seven that we read last week said that God is angry every day. And so I find it interesting that we struggle sometimes to understand that the way we live and some of the choices that we make cause God to become angry. Over and over in the Bible, the scripture says that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the God that we like to think about, is it not? We love to think about the God God that is gracious, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, always there for us, always faithful. We, We love to think about that. And so I think we focus so much on God's compassion and grace and mercy that sometimes we lose sight of his righteousness That phrase, that uh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Did you know that's found at least ten times in the Bible referring to God? And then that's found an additional five times in the Bible where it's encouraging us to be like God. That we should also be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. You see... I want us to notice something very important here about that Before we get to our text today Because that, you know, that's even on the front of your bulletin From Joel chapter 2 Talks about God is gracious and merciful Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love It says it over and over again But there's something we need to notice there It does not say that God does not get angry It says that he is slow to anger Thank the Lord, He's patient with us. He doesn't get angry, uh, you know, flying off the handle. He's not capricious. He is a God who loves us with a steadfast and patient love. But it does not say He never gets angry, it says that He is slow to anger. And he's challenging us to imitate him in that. He wants us to be slow to become angry. He wants us to overflow with love for others. Well, two weeks ago, I defined anger as a passionate response to some sort of injustice. All right? Anger is fueled by our passion. We have in us, because we are created in the image of God, we have in us this innate understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And when we see injustice in the world, we are passionate about it and we see this, you know, thing that needs to change. And so it causes us to become angry. Well... As we looked at that, we talked about the difference between productive anger and destructive anger. Uh, Productive anger is passion that brings about constructive action. We get angry about something, and so we do something about it. In our community group this past week, we were talking, and and I brought up a, a group called MAD, which I think is quite possibly the greatest acronym ever, right? Mothers Against Drunk Drivers mad you see these ladies back 30 35 years ago I think it's when this started got angry about the fact that there were so many kids getting drunk and having accidents so many adults getting drunk and uh killing kids on the road and so they got mad about it and did something constructive about it great example of productive anger On the other hand, you know, productive anger brings about constructive action. Destructive anger is also passion, but it is passion that is out of control. I think those are great working definitions for us, uh, for anger, but in some ways, I think they need a little more explanation. And Dr. Gary Chapman does an excellent job of further delineating some of the characteristics of anger And he breaks that down further by talking about definitive anger and distorted anger. You see, anger is a valid response to a situation where someone mistreats us. Or if someone steals our property, it's okay to get angry about it. It's a valid reason. If someone lies about your character, it's a valid reason or justified reason to become angry. Or if they do whatever other sort of wrong against us. All of these describe situations in which God might become angry. All of these, whether it's being treated unfairly, uh, being the, the victim of theft, or slander, or in whatever way. These are all situations that cause God to become angry. Why? Why? Because he is righteous. His holiness hates sin. And his love loves the sinner. And so his anger is expressed in order to correct us in that process. Well, whenever this, there are justifiable reasons for our anger, that's when Chapman refers to this as righteous anger or definitive anger. It's a clear-cut scenario where an injustice has occurred. And so these are valid reasons to be angry. It is definitive anger. But what about the other? This concept of distorted anger. You see, a distorted anger is when there isn't a valid reason. When it's really not justifiable for us to get angry, and yet we get angry anyway. Therefore it's distorted. Gary Chapman states this. He said that distorted anger is triggered by a mere disappointment, an unfulfilled desire, a frustrated effort, or even just a bad mood, or any number of other things. And they have nothing to do with a moral transgression. No one in distorted anger has done anything wrong, necessarily, They've just triggered us in some way because of what we're dealing with, potentially. The situation oftentimes has just simply made life inconvenient for us. I mean, have you gotten angry just because of an inconvenience? You know, it drives me crazy when people drive 30 miles an hour down New Hope. Side by side, you know? Are they committing a moral transgression? Absolutely not. Do I have a righteous, justifiable reason to become angry in that situation? Absolutely not because it's just an inconvenience. Do I get angry? Yeah. Sometimes. But that's the key. We've got to, when we get angry, we've got to discern what's making us angry. It might just simply be an inconvenience for us, or another reason, it might touch one of our emotional hot spots. Um, you know, or it could just be that whatever happened, happened when you were extremely stressed or extremely tired. If you ever have a problem with a preacher, don't come talk to him on a Sunday morning after a service. It is not the best time for me to try to deal with your frustrations with me because I'm not gonna respond well because I'm a sinner and I have issues. You all know this. I've been around for a while now. You know these things. It's a challenge, why? Because I'm tired, worn out. We call it a uh, preacher brain, you know, where it, everything just leaves us. But those are the times where if we're triggered, often those things, often that anger is a distorted anger. What the person did frustrated me in some way. Or maybe they just disappointed me. They didn't do anything wrong. I'm just disappointed in them. I'm I'm hurt. Or sometimes it's what they did embarrassed me. I'm mad because I'm embarrassed. What they did or said or whatever wasn't wrong, but I'm embarrassed. Therefore, I'm angry. These are all examples of distorted anger. You know, sometimes we may think that our anger is valid. We may think that we have a justifiable reason to be angry. Only to discover that we didn't actually have all the facts about a situation. Have you ever been there? Where you got angry about something, somebody did this and it just frustrated you and made you angry. angry, And then later on, you find out, oh... They had a really good reason for doing that. And you just hope and pray that you didn't mess something up in the the intermediate time when you didn't have all the facts. Sometimes a perceived wrong leads us to anger. But the alleged wrong is only in our perception. There's no wrongdoing that's taken place on the other person. We just perceived it. And to quote the great philosopher Donnie Parrish, Perception is reality. Whatever I perceive, that is my reality. That doesn't mean it's right, but it's what I think. And so whenever we deal with this and we find ourselves getting angry, we've got to try to determine, is this justifiable, valid, righteous anger? Well, there are a couple ways we can do that. First of all, we should ask ourselves, what was the wrong that was committed? What did that person do that was actually wrong? If it was just they frustrated me, that's not valid. Was there something that was a transgression that happened? And if we say yes, then ask yourself a second question. Am I sure that I have all the facts? Because none of us ever really have all the facts. we got to work hard to try to understand the perspective of others. And we may discover that our anger is being fueled more by our frustration or more by our embarrassment than it is Of an actual wrongdoing. And so we need to be careful and know why we're getting angry. Well, in just a few minutes, we're gonna read uh, once again from Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul tells us to get angry. Did you know? Did you notice that? He says, Be angry, but get angry without sinning, is what he says. Being created in God's image. There are injustices in this world that should cause us to get angry. Anger is not wrong. Only anger that is out of control is wrong. And so this morning I want to look at a couple of letters uh, of Paul's in the New Testament. And then we're also going to look at a few Proverbs. And we're going to look at these to help us discover Four keys for making anger productive, not destructive. If you have your Bible, let's start in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. We've referred to this passage over the last couple of weeks. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into this passage, as deep as I can go um, in the short time that I have this morning. Um, but let's begin by reading Starting in verse 16 Galatians 5 verse 16 the Bible says but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law now the works of the flesh are evident. I could spend the next thirty minutes talking just about this passage, but I'm going to try to not happen I'm going to try that, that to not let that happen but if it does, then we'll look at key number one and next week we'll look at keys two, three, and four so we'll see but here in this passage, uh if you have a Bible that has headers in it, you know uh, the header probably says something about keeping in step with the Spirit. And that's kind of the, the uh, overall big idea here is to keep in step with the Spirit. We should walk in a way that our lives demonstrate our faith in Jesus Christ. Our lifestyle will demonstrate where we're walking. Did you realize that? The, our manner of life will demonstrate our daily walk in life. And if our daily walk is with the Lord in his spirit, then our lifestyle will demonstrate that. But if our daily walk is in the flesh, our lifestyle will also demonstrate that as well. You see, walking in the spirit minimizes our, the impact of our fleshly desires. Walking in the spirit means that we're spending time in God's word. It means that we're spending time talking to the Lord in prayer every single day. What we feed will grow. Have you heard that? Whatever you feed is going to grow. If you're feeding your spirit, your spiritual growth will be evident. If you're feeding your flesh, then it will not. Whatever we feed will grow. And if we feed our spirit with the word of God, then the Holy Spirit's influence over us will expand. Now, this does not mean that we will never sin, okay? But what it does mean is that the power of sin, the power that sin has over us, will diminish proportionately to our growth in the spirit. The more we grow, the less power. Sin has over us psalm 37 4 reminds us to delight ourselves in the lord and he will give us the desires of our heart when we delight ourselves in him he puts new desires in us he gets rid of those desires for the flesh and gives us desires to to do what he wants us to do but folks when we feed our fleshly desires our sinful nature becomes more and more influential in our lives. So we ought to be walking in the spirit, but oftentimes we find that we're walking instead in the flesh. And walking in the flesh works against the impact of the Holy Spirit in us. It is evidence that we are not walking in the uh, spirit when our lives are Are characterized by the things that we see in verses 19 20 and 21 Paul says now the works of the flesh are evident and then gives us a very long list of those things notice again what Paul includes in verse 20 he talks about enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions and divisions You know what? All of those things that I just mentioned deal with anger. They all deal with anger. Eugene Peterson described the results of following the desires of your sinful nature in this way. Talking about these things in verse 20. He calls them paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants. A brutal temper, an impotence to love, and an impotence to be loved. Divided homes, divided lives. You see, when we feed these deep, dark pieces of our soul, they take over our lives, restricting any hope that we may have in living for God. So he tells us to walk in the spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. So how can we keep in step with the spirit? Well, if we look at verses 24, 25, and 26, honestly, these are oftentimes um, afterthoughts because we focus in so much on the fruit of the spirit in 22 and 23. But notice what it tells us in 24 through 26 it gives us a few steps that we can take. The first is this, crucify your flesh. You see, this crucifixion of the flesh is something that we must do to ourselves every single day. John Stott explained it this way. He said, please notice that the crucifixion of the flesh described here is something that is done not to us, but it is done by us. Galatians 5.24 does not teach the same thing as Galatians 2.20. Do you remember that one? I am crucified in Christ. Therefore I no longer live. Yet not I. But it is Christ who lives in me. It, it's a different type of crucifixion as is there. Or in Romans 6.6. 6. In those verses we are told that our union with Christ by faith. Has crucified us with him but here in this verse it's talking about us taking the action we are the ones to crucify our flesh we've got to put to death all of these desires the second thing I notice is that we must keep in step with the spirit we must walk in line with the, with the Lord. And the only way to keep in step with the Spirit it is through spiritual disciplines. None of us like to be disciplined. None of us like to do disciplined things. I mean, you, you may be one of those weird ones that love to go to the gym. Um, but most people don't. Even though we all know it's good for us. Spiritual disciplines are good for us. It's things that we need to do every single day. Things like Bible reading, prayer. Some of the ones that I I use in my life include soap journaling, and I've I've encouraged you to do some of those things. I think fasting is important. I don't fast on a regular basis, uh, but when I'm dealing with issues... To deny myself of whatever, whether that's food, social media, TV, whatever, to focus on what God's will is for me in a situation. These are spiritual disciplines, and there are so many more. But the only way to keep in step with the Spirit is to spend time in spiritual disciplines day by day. Now, I do want to point something out here because we find here in this passage Galatians 5.16, it says to walk by the Spirit. And then in verse 25, it says live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. And you know, you, you think those are the same thing, but it actually uses two different Greek words. The first one in verse 16 actually refers to just that normal walk, that normal word for walking, Uh, And it refers to the manner of life. So our manner of life should be that what God tells us to do. We're walking in the spirit. But this second word means to walk in line with or to be in line with. So this second word that it's saying to keep in step with the spirit, you know, there should not be any thing that people see in us that they don't see in the in the spirit of God. When I preached on this back in 2015, if you remember, I actually showed a, a video of a marching band where there was just like one person that was totally off through the whole thing. And you could it was just so obvious when they're not in step with everyone else. Well, that's the idea here. We need to Fall in line. We need to do what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. So we must crucify our flesh. Walk in line with the Lord. And then the last thing I put here is consider others before yourself. Because see in verse 26 it says don't become conceited. Don't provoke others. Or if I may say don't stir the pot. And then also and don't envy one another. And as I was thinking about this, you know, it just makes perfect sense that if we just put others before ourselves, we wouldn't do any of those things. If we put others first, we won't be conceited. If we put others first, we're not going to provoke them. We're not going to envy them. We're putting their needs first. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 is a beautiful passage about putting the needs of others first and and considering them first because that was the mindset of Christ. So these three things teach us how we can be in step with the Holy Spirit of God. Well, let's keep moving or I will not be able to get through what we want to examine today. I want us to turn now to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we're going to uh, look at this passage um, for just a moment, and uh, we're, in a minute we're going to read the last eight verses of this chapter, but before we do that, I think it's important that we notice the very first word in verse 25, that's where our reading is going to begin. Do you see what the first word is in verse 25? What is it? Therefore. Therefore. So anytime we see the word therefore, we need to see what it's there for. So in the first section of chapter 4, Paul is encouraging believers to grow up and mature in their faith in Jesus Christ. So that they will not be swayed by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. If you remember, we looked at that verse three weeks ago uh, in Chapter 4, verse 13, how that is the goal of discipleship, to come to complete maturity in Christ. And so then after that first section, he goes on to say that believers should stop living like the rest of the world. I need to thank Brother David for reading my context this morning during the worship time because he read to you 17 through 24 about putting off The old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt because of deceitful desires. And start living our new life by putting on the new self created in the likeness of God. In true righteousness and true holiness. And so because of these things now, let's look at what he says next. Verse 25, therefore... forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the first key that we looked at this morning was to be in step with a spirit. Key number two is to be slow to anger and quick to resolve. Again, I said it earlier, I said it last week, I'm gonna say it one more time. The Bible tells us here to be angry. Did you realize that that is a present middle imperative in the second person plural? You know what that means? Every single one of us, God is giving us an imperative to be angry. Now the Bible warns us about the dangers of being hot tempered, but it does not forbid us from becoming angry. If you look at Proverbs 15 Verse 18, it says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The Bible also tells us that hotheads are considered fools that no, nobody likes. If you turn back to Proverbs 14, verse 17, it says, a man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. So if we are to be angry, we don't want to be hotheads. We don't want to fly off the handle. Now we just learned that we are to keep in step with the Spirit of God. So what does that look like if we are keeping in step with the Spirit of God? What is God like? Is God a hothead? No, not at all. God is love. God is patient and kind. God is long-suffering. God is slow to get angry. So we are to be angry, but the Bible tells us to not stay angry. Okay? We are to be angry, but we are to not stay angry. F.F. Bruce wrote this. He said, here it is suggested that anger can be prevented it, let me try that again Here it is suggested that anger can be prevented from degenerating into sin if a strict timeline is placed on it do not let the sun go down on your anger why is this so important why is it so important that we don't let our anger linger Well, Dr. Harold Honer explained it this way. He said, the way to keep from sinning when we are angry is to keep short accounts. dealing Dealing with our anger before the sun goes down. The reason is that the devil, he says, the devil would like to intensify a Christian's righteous anger against sin, causing it to become sin itself. That's pretty profound. The devil wants a foothold in our life. And righteous anger can be that foothold if we don't deal with it. If we don't let it go. It can become sin. Even if it starts as righteous anger. He goes on and says, this then gives the devil a foothold. Literally a place or an opportunity for leading that Christian further into sin. Now, there's one more aspect of this second key to making your your anger productive that is implied, but it has not been stated here. And this is it. Folks, there is no room for holding a grudge in this situation, in any situation. If we are to be angry and not sin and not let the sun go down on our anger, there is no room whatsoever for holding a grudge. When we remain angry, we are then quenching the work of the Holy Spirit inside us. We're grieving the Holy Spirit because He can't do the work that He wants to do in us because our anger is filled. Filling us so we must purpose in our hearts not to hold on to things don't hold on to these things that make us angry we've got to learn to let them go and allow God to take care of them Um, and I'll talk a little more about that in just a moment let's move on to key number three The third key in making anger productive is to be edifying and gracious when you're angry. That sounds pretty easy, right? Be edifying, meaning to build other people up, not tear them down. What does this teach us? Well, I think it teaches us that we need to watch the way we talk to people, especially when we're angry. We need to be careful about what we say and how we say it. And remember that so much of our communication is not the words that come out of our mouth. But the looks on our face and our body language. We need to watch the way we talk to people when we are angry. Paul warns us here to not use any corrupting talk. Did you see that? Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only that which is edifying. Edifying. That it may give grace to those who hear. The idea behind this phrase, corrupting talk. uh, If you you look it up in a Greek lexicon, you'll see that this word means rotten or putrid. It's, It's words that are unfit for use, that are worthless. We don't need to let this kind of communication come out of our mouths Strong's dictionary adds the idea that this could refer to being literally worthless or morally worthless but folks too many times when we're angry too many times when we're angry those are the only words we seem to know are those things that are worthless rotten And we say some of the the meanest things that we would never say otherwise when we're angry. We've got to be careful. We have to watch the way we talk to people, especially when we're angry. And we need to remember that our words must always be kept under the control of the Holy Spirit. Can I just say, if you want the things that you say to be kept under the control of the Holy Spirit, you have no hope for that to happen if you are not keeping in step with him daily. That's the beginning. That's the discipline. By the way, reading your Bible is not the war in the Christian life. Reading your Bible in prayer is the preparation for the war that you're going to experience during that day. And if you don't prepare yourself, then you're going to be a bad soldier. You have no chance of keeping your words under the control of the Holy Spirit if you're not in his word and talking with him daily in prayer. You know what? You also have no chance of keeping your words under the control of the Holy Spirit if your typical M.O. is to react or respond quickly. Do you remember what James 1.19 and 20 said we read last week? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Now, it's not speak slowly, to clarify. Um, But it's don't jump in, don't react and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when we're angry we need to choose words that build people up. We need to choose words that are not going to tear them down. Which is our, that's our M.O. Our modus operandi. We, when we're angry at someone we want to tear them to shreds don't we? We want them to know we're angry. And how can we do that if we don't? So let's let them have it. The scripture says we've got to build them up, not tear them down. We need to extend grace to them rather than trying to exact vengeance upon them. In Romans chapter 12, Paul dealt with this subject For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Folks, if we will do this the way this passage is instructing us, by extending grace to others, by edifying or building them up rather than tearing them down, I need to give you a warning. If you do that, they may not realize you're angry. And that doesn't change the issue. If there was a transgression against you or a transgression against God's word that you feel like you need to address. Normally you would do that by getting angry. If you're speaking edifying and grace filled words. How are you going to communicate that? How are you going to let them know that there was a problem? They will not have the normal social cues and the, the nonverbal cues to let them know that we're upset with them. So how do we let them know that there's a problem if we're being gracious and edifying? Well, if we do this right, we're going to have to heed the teaching of Jesus In the Gospel of Matthew. Which says. If your brother sins against you. Go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. And if he listens to you. You've gained a brother. You see folks. Anger's goal is not division. But anger's goal should be reconciliation. Because. It's. Source is the righteousness of God and the love of God. If we're angry, it should be because we see a wrong, we see an injustice, and we love that person enough to try to make it right. And that's restoration or reconciliation. That should be our goal. So key number three is to be edifying and gracious. When we're angry let's look at our last one key number four be kind and forgiving when you're angry be kind and forgiving when you're angry you see there are two aspects of Paul's instructions here one is an admonition and the other is an encouragement Uh, if you look back we're we're back in Ephesians chapter four if you look at verse 31 uh, Paul admonishes them. To get rid of the sinful consequences of destructive anger. He says to get rid of bitterness. Get rid of passionate rage. Get rid of this anger that is focused on punishing others. Get rid of harsh words and false accusations. And and get rid of all kinds of evil behavior. Do you know someone who exhibits these characteristics on a regular basis? Someone who is bitter, filled with rage, angry, can't say anything nice? Do you know someone like that? Or maybe a better question is, are you someone like that? As we live our lives, in such a way that we, we seek to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, these characteristics will be put away little by little, day by day. He will transform your life as you grow and mature in Him. So He admonishes, put those things away. And then He encourages in verse 32. Rather, to be kind, compassionate, tender-hearted, and forgiving. If you look at it, what he tells us to do in verse 32 is just kind of the opposite of what he said don't do in verse 31. They're they're the opposite behaviors. They're the opposite reactions. Be kind, compassionate tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as Christ has forgiven you. You know, for us to look at a person who has wronged us, who has sinned against us, transgressed our relationship, treated us badly, lied about us, whatever, when there is a righteous anger, a definitive anger there, For us to look at that person with compassion and mercy, with a tender heart, ready to forgive, takes a work of the Holy Spirit of God. One thing that really helps us to be able to do this is when we try to see things from the other person's perspective. We talked about that earlier when we were talking about sometimes what we think is definitive anger or righteous anger really is not. It's really more distorted anger because we don't have all the facts. So before we get angry, we need to try to see things from the other person's perspective. Well, we've considered four keys this morning That will help us, that that will help us to try to make our anger productive rather than destructive. I've asked you to keep in step with the spirit, not with the flesh. To be slow to anger and quick to resolve, to be edifying and gracious when we are angry, and to be kind and forgiving. When we are angry. My question to you as we bring this to a close is where do you find yourself today? Where do you, what what stage of that do you find yourself struggling with today? In just a moment we're going to sing a song and as always I'm going to ask you to analyze yourself, analyze your life and ask the spirit of God to show you what you need to do as a result of the truths that have been shared this morning. As you take these next few minutes to analyze yourself and analyze your life, I think it's important that we start with the beginning and work our way forward with these keys. Let me explain. You see, if you're not keeping in step with the spirit of God, and you're not crucifying the desires of your flesh, folks, you have very little chance to be able to do keys two, three, and four. If you're not doing key number one, you can kind of forget about the rest. These uh, these steps, these keys, are kind of a graduated cycle. Only through consistency in the first key are you able to carry out the second. And only through consistency in the second key are you able to carry out the third and the fourth. So today, if you were to evaluate your life and the difficult situations and the difficult relationships that you face every single day, which of these keys is the one that you need to focus on? most of your attention on today what is God asking you to do to change the way you're living your life day by day let's pray father I thank you for the truth of your word and for the opportunity to share it this morning and father is each of us are analyzing ourselves today as we're thinking about the way that we live each and every day. I just pray, Father, that you would convict our our hearts to do something about it. Lord, help us not to just sit here passively and let this go in one ear and out the other. But Lord, help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.